0: Mhm thank you. Um well thank you so much for uh an adventure through central london <laughs> to get here. And um yeah, I'm just really excited to be speaking to you three. Mm-hmm. Um, and the project's called Sound Observations a Celebration of Modern Healthcare and we're working towards uh, an exhibition of sound and light. In, um, in Central Hall, St. Thomas's. Mm. So if it's okay, I'm just going to get everyone to uh, say and spell their name. Um, and, oh, actually, what time is it? It's uh, ten to three. Ten to three, lovely. Going to get everyone to say and spell their name, if that's all right. And the year that you uh, trained...
1: Cool. so we start here <laughs> my name is charlotte yearwood martin and spell it c-h-a-r-l-o-t-t-e charlotte yearwood y-e-a-r-w-o-o-d martin m-a-r-t-i-n and i trained in 2004
2: i'm Gillian Eastman, normally known as jill and it's j-i-l-l-i-a-n E-A-S-T-M-O-N-D. And I trained in 1991. Trained cool. and qualified in 1991.
3: Cool. I'm Rasline Kahai, but like to be known as Raz. So R-A-S for sugar, L-E-E-N for November. Kahai, K-A-H-A-I. And I qualified in 2018. Cool.
0: And, and how would you describe yourself today, just in a couple of sentences. Nice. Who are you?
1: How do you would I describe I, if I introduced myself
0: yeah. at a party or something? At a party.
1: <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> I've, been <at> a party. <laughs> I'm, I've just introduced myself as Charlotte. Um, I live in London. I. It depends on if it's uh, sociable event, then i just introduce myself. I may say where I was born, if asked. um, And I'm Afro-Caribbean.
2: Where were you born, Charlotte?
1: I was born in Belize. So I would uh, introduce myself that way. If I was at a professional, I would say my name, Charlotte Yearwood-Martin. I work as a clinical research nurse in fertility, and I've worked over eight years in fertility. Um, and I am a Kofo Orola Benny Pratt
2: Fellow. So I normally just go up to everyone and go, hi all <laughs> <laughs> and ask lots of questions about them, so it's rare that there's time for anyone to ask about me, so I don't normally introduce myself fully. I am, um, I guess, always happy, chatty, I'm quite chilled though, that sounds a bit like how can you be one and then the other but I am just that person that's that's quite chill, I that's the best way to describe it. I'm, it's not true is it because I'm quite drama, I think I'm chill mm-hmm. but I don't actually know that I am. Do you think I'm chill? Yes. Okay cool. Yeah, I am mm-hmm. a dental nurse by trade. But I have taught the dental team, um, I like teaching topics like policy and legislation because you can get just much richer interaction from people when they start to tell you how they avoid policy and I do like that. Um, I tend to teach a lot of things like policy, um, radiation protection, control of infection, that type of thing. Um, So that's why I worry about my voice carrying because I can speak in a lecture theatre without a microphone to 300 people. That's quite a skill. Because it mm. carries. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, so I'm Raz. Um, I would describe myself as a sister, a daughter, a friend. Um, professionally, I am a respiratory dietitian and I have interests in health inequalities as well as respiratory medicine generally, um, but also nutritional counselling skills and people in general and I'm also one of the Coffee Roller Benny Pratt Fellows.
2: Cool. And yeah, I forgot to mention I was a coffee Roller Abeni Pratt Fellow and I chair a um dental diversity group for dental director at Guy's Hospital. Cool.
0: Um and the thing I'm I'm really curious, like what who or what made Youth Free all decide to work in healthcare because it's a very special thing to do. Mm.
2: My mum told me not to. My mum was adamant that none of her children would work in healthcare um, because she came over in 1961 from Barbados. She's not a Windrush generation, she will make you know, because she came on an aeroplane. My mum's a roaring snob, Um, (laughs) but beautiful with it. Um, So she came over in 61 and um, went straight into nursing. She was only 18 when she came, so she didn't have any prior experience or anything. She Actually, now I talk to my mum, when she was a teenager, she was a housemaid. So there was still a, uh, she was a housemaid to a white family in Barbados, yeah, um, so when she came over here she was just still used to caring for people and their children, so nursing was the natural um, the natural career for her, um, but she had such a terrible experience she told us not to, so I wanted to be a midwife, I always, my entire um Teens, I'm going to be a midwife, I'm going to be a midwife. and My mum wouldn't let me. It wasn't an out and out. No, she wasn't going to support that. So I went into dental nursing, which is a poor second. Kind of glad I did, but I often imagine where I would be now if I had been a midwife. But I respect that my mum had such a bad time um, that she didn't want us to experience the same. But I still have that real pull and desire to care for others, everything I want to do changes something so in dentistry someone comes in with no teeth and they leave with teeth they can eat they can socialize they feel confident everything changes they're in pain we take them out of pain so there was always that element of making something better for someone and that's when I feel Mm -hmm. happiest
0: it's a really moving story about your mum yeah she had it
2: terribly yeah and we were talking yesterday and she was saying, the funny thing is, I think it still happens now, Jill. I said, yeah, it does. There's <laughs> still people that don't want to be treated by black nurses. There's still racism, in it, you know, and it's a shame. And But we've had a better experience than her and we've got completely different characters to my mum. So we can do something about it. Whereas it was very difficult for her to do anything about the racism she experienced.
0: Yeah. I bet she's dead proud of you now, isn't she? Only now. So, my whole. So, for the last
2: 20 years, I was a continuing education teacher, trainer trained thousands of dental nurses a national examiner for dental nurses i i lecture all over the country um she didn't care she, well not she didn't care i lie, she just wasn't interested soon as i became a sister a dental sister she was like oh i know what that is now so now she's dead proud of me sort 30 years into my career <laughs> cuz she gets it now and she understands that i'm happy and we don't have The same experience was always her concern. She all right.
0: (laughs) Say that again, that was lovely. Oh, sorry, I said she all right now. (laughs) (laughs) And how about you guys?
1: Um, Growing up, I had three different women. I was thinking about this. I had three different women who I really admired. One was the head of nursing um, school in Belize. And I admired this woman. She trained in England, but went back to Belize to work as a nurse. And then I had a cousin who was a midwife. And then my neighbor. The one thing I liked about, or I loved about them, they were always pristine because the uniform was white. And I don't know how they managed to stay white. (laughs) And, And then they had the hats. And... I used to admire them as this little girl, looking at them and thinking, wow, just as we were walking down the stairs. So today, as we walked down the stairs, it was me, Jill, and Ronke. And the, the, a little girl came out the room, and she looked up, and she said, wow. And that was me <laughs> as a little girl. too, And I, I we, we didn't have uniform on, but she was just... Wow, And her mom yeah. came out behind her and just laughed. But we, we said to ourselves, I wonder what, what that was mm-hmm. wow about. Because I used to say that about the three ladies. I Wow. Especially my cousin, she'd come back with stories of the deliveries and, and so on. And I used to think, when I get older, I'll do nursing. However, when I did get older, <laughs> I thought, nowhere can I see blood. No way can I... <laughs> I look after dead bodies. <laughs> no way can I... So I I then changed my mind. But then I came back to it after finishing my first degree at King's College. I did health sciences. And so I was in the lab for my last... Like, like you had to do a project in the third year. And I hated lab work. I thought, there's no way I'm going to do... It. So then I revisit the idea of doing nursing. So I, I retrained after... After f- completing my first degree, I then went on to do nursing, um, having done some work in the community on a chlamydia program with um, Terence Higgins Trust, and so that's where I decided to go back and do some nurse training. Cool. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank okay. you. Um,
3: I guess I'm obviously a dietitian, so not a nurse. I think the reason I went into dietetics is probably not as lovely as your guys' story. (laughs) So I think my story was that I became a wheelchair user in my early teens unexpectedly, and so I was trying to think of what best to do because prior to that I was very artsy and played multiple musical instruments and very into sports, so all of that stopped. Um, And I was quite pigeonholed into sciences. And so I was trying to think of what next for me and something I really enjoyed was working with people. When I did look at a lot of the different healthcare professional roles... I felt for me at the time and that's not to say it's the same for other wheelchair users but with my limited range of mobility at the time I felt things like nursing and medicine were quite were going to be too challenging things like physio was going to be quite challenging speech and language therapist was going to be quite challenging um, so I think that left with pretty much a couple of options of like dietetics or psychology or outside healthcare anything like youth work or potentially being a teacher But I think the reason I chose dietetics, let alone the fact that I was interested in food and baking, but was also because the degree was free. So I was part of the NHS funding, and had I gone into something outside of healthcare, it would have been £9,000. And so um, I think it was also the smartest choice financially because I think i would have got a degree and even if i had changed my mind which i haven't i'm happy in dietetics but had i i still would have had a degree under my belt and could have probably switched um so yeah that's
0: very cool and talking about like food and and cooking and things and i i'm always really interested in the healthcare traditions that people bring with them from their own families like my family was like a bit of prayer and a lot of Savlon, <laughs> whatever you had. <laughs> and uh, but, but I'm just curious about what your families did to keep you well, and how they dealt with kind of sickness when you weren't well.
1: So, so my grandmother's nursing skills. If as a child growing up, I suffered with them. Um, um, and I still do um, bronchitis, like repeat, re- repeated bronchitis. And in thirty four degrees, she would rub Vicks all mm-hmm. over my chest, and I'd go to sleep, and I feel like I'm on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and even when I moved to Europe, she, she, and I would speak to her, and she'd hear congestion, she'd say, "Don't forget to put that Vicks on your chest." <laughs> mm. I never did. (laughs) (laughs) It
2: works. (laughs) (laughs) My mum's crazy old school. My best story is my granddad in Barbados, Ruben James Nathaniel, had a ganja plant at the back of the house, Uh cured all ales. They cooked it, drank it, no one smoked it. Uh Um, So when anyone felt unwell or when the kids were little and they couldn't sleep, they'd cup of ganja tea (laughs) (laughs) but when my mum couldn't get ganja in the UK she just gave us a glass of port to sleep at night so (laughs) when we couldn't sleep we had either sherry or port and um but she's very much she loves the old remedies so if we had a headache we'd have this thing called bay rum Mm. I think it's like a straight out you can get them now in like a rub but we'd have bay rum for headaches ginger for stomach aches um epsom salts for muscle ache we had all the old school and she used to always say when you go to Barbados bring me back the peninsulin plant because there's a plant that um she said if they ever had ear earache or eye infections and things my grandma Perlina would pick these leaves crush them up mix it with a bit of water and drop it in wherever was affected and it would clear it up so we've Oh, drank some things in my life I had appendicitis and she gave me brandy and hot water because she thought it was wind yeah mm. she was great she's the most natural kind of Mary Cole-ish mm-hmm. type of person and then she she would stay up with you the whole night if you didn't feel well she'd be there so no matter how rotten you felt you'd look and little Doreen would be sat looking at you yeah mm-hmm.
3: it's really old school <laughs> um mine are definitely not as wonderful as those um so my mum definitely had the mindset of if i was unwell because i would lose i'd had the tendency to lose my appetite quite quickly like that's one of my biggest symptoms if i ever become unwell so she would just give me everything and anything so it ranged from lucozade was quite a big one all the way through to chocolate mousse <laughs> through to my favorite crisps um yeah, anything probably more on the junk food side that she could get my hands on, and I would eat. I would get.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Cool, that works too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's your family one.
0: Well, because I've got different bits of my family, yeah. but my mum and dad were very strong believers in Savlon, you know, uh, which is yeah. just <laughs> <our top laughs> antiseptic cream. But then, oh, like on the sort of Jewish side, there would be like prayer and things uh. like that. And then I think also. Some of my aunties were really into magic mushrooms, <laughs> but um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because we all carry these, yes, folk remedies, mm-hmm. and I wonder whether you also come across that in with your patients, like or.
2: Please tell them about the changes you've made, Raz, because
3: I think that's like amazing, with your diet sheets and things. Oh yeah, I think yes there's definitely like and you can understand why I think obviously being a patient and a clinician myself when you are a patient I know that I personally felt so incredibly vulnerable trying to look for a cure or a treatment or will anything help me to get better so um, I completely understand that lots of different people try lots of different things I think the most important thing is that we're making sure as dietitians, that it's safe and not harmful. Um, I think what Jill was talking about was a piece of work I did around cultural competence. So we typically work with patients who are malnourished. They typically have respiratory or cardiac disease and they have become um, very unwell. And they're becoming catabolic, which means that they're burning off a lot of energy and their muscles are wasting away. And so at this moment in time, it's really important that we are optimising their energy and protein intake. And I think something I had noticed quite early on was the information we were giving, because it's really important that we obviously give verbal information, but also written to kind of back it up, was that it was very much based on a Western diet and had no foods from... Africa, the Caribbean, anywhere in South Asia, anywhere in East Asia and I'm all for not reinventing the wheel but when I tried to look elsewhere to look at poor appetite diet sheets which had some of this information on they were all pretty incomplete so some might have some South Asian but no Afro-Caribbean foods for example. So I worked with lots of different dietitians from lots of different backgrounds and got it checked with our staff networks as well to incorporate a Lots of different foods, world foods from lots of different countries, into our diet sheet, which we now give out to patients. And this is now hopefully helping a lot with lots of different patients from lots of different backgrounds. Because I remember before just giving the previous one to um, a patient who was African, and I just remember thinking he's just going to put it in the bin because it just had nothing for him. And it was actually, I actually felt quite embarrassed inside. So yeah, hopefully that will help. And I know that when we have given it to patients, they've looked at it and they said, oh, it's got my food in it. So it's had a really big impact on our patients from ethnic minority backgrounds.
0: Mm. That, is like, that is huge. Mm. Do you guys want to add anything? Um,
1: because I work in research, um, I try to incop- uh, include Um, women from all backgrounds, and what I do find with um, some patient groups, particularly from Afro-Caribbean background, is that um, some, because they've been trying to get pregnant, they would um, have this, like you asked us what we brought from our country, they would have some, um, what you would call... Um, remedies from their c- culture to, to get pregnant. But because we're in research, I want to make sure that the drugs we're giving them is the dr- actual drugs that got them pregnant and not something else. So it's really I have to keep emphasizing and reiterating not to be taking anything outside of what we' we' are testing basically in in research. So uh, it's quite the opposite because I have to constantly remind um, my patient group, <laughs> um, and 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 it's really important because um, sometimes it, it's something that could be perceived as harmless, but it interacts with the drugs that they're taking. So it's it's it's. The opposite, that I have to try and discourage them from using stuff from back home.
2: <laughs> yeah, good old back home remedy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, there's millions, isn't there? No?
1: Yeah. I, particularly, uh, um, I had patients who either had gone home and brought back bushes, different mm-hmm. bush drinks to, to drink while they're in the research, and I'm like, you can't do it because it could cause also if we have um let's say we have the baby delivered with something that's wrong do we know it's the drugs or do we know it's something that they took
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i find that oral health is not necessarily a priority in a lot of cultures you know when your teeth hurt you take them out and sort of the aesthetics of having teeth was never a priority you know and it's still quite often a battle when i'm talking about healthy eating um good oral hygiene you know buy this inter- interdental aid it'll make all the difference you know don't forget to floss every day not interested so it's mm. trying to sort of say you know because you can go to some dentist and for example you could have a crown fitted and they'd be like oh it'll be shade a1 that's the whitest because obviously they're just like, oh, black people really white teeth so we'll just give them the whitest one and it's not the case yeah. so it's really weird you get these two types of people the patients that are not that bothered the dentists that come up with this sort of yeah. give a shade A1-2 straight away you know um, it's quite funny but trying to get good messages across used to be more of a struggle luckily now things are changing and no longer do, you know, people come in with their own remedies for oral health care. They're pretty much happy to buy things on the market. Mm-hmm. But I remember being in my teens and, you know, patients coming in, they'd have the tooth in their hand. It's like, it's all right, I suck it out. And you're like, you've got 28 gaps, mate. And they're like, it's all right. <laughs> Can eat soup. So <laughs> luckily in oral healthcare, care, things are changing for the better.
0: And I'm just wondering, when you when you were early in your career, did you did you find it easy to find mentors who were black or Asian women? Like, did you have
2: not at all? The first experience I had of seeing a black dentist was when I moved to London. I was 24 by then, and there was a black student. I was like, oh. I phoned my brother back in Manchester like, you'll never believe there's a black student dentist. And we were like, oh my God. Growing up in sort of northwest of England, we just didn't see it. There was no mentors. Our family were quite, they were older members of the family, all had quite negative experiences, so they weren't there. Um, My first mentor was probably Diana Wincott, who's an older white lady, but that's good because she could just see me and she created roles for me based on what you know what she knew and what she saw of me so she was my first mentor she sort of set me on that really good path and then i ended up when i came to all of this happened in london none of this happened in manchester at all in fact i was telling you all last week my dentist boss in manchester used to give me the briefcase with the week's takings handcuff it to my hands because he said that none of my black friends would steal from me and it's 16 year old me walking through the market with a yeah yeah and he thought that was okay mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, so I had nothing no one we just sort of had each other it was always a family bond um, but coming to London I did find Diana as um, my first mentor and then I worked with a um, consultant periodontist Ravi and he became sort of my London dad, I guess he was. He was like, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. But it was always, it, it didn't have a name then. It was, you know, we weren't known well, as mentors, but looking back, he certainly was.
0: I can't believe that about the dentist. That...
2: Yeah, handcuffed it, like proper handcuffs on the mm-hmm. briefcase, yeah had the key. I was like, mate, do you think I'm not just going to unlock it and give it to them? <laughs> and yeah, you know, I just think, how did you even say that out loud? Mm. You know, but no one bied an eyelid, no one defended it. Everyone's like, all right, see you. You know, I had no one.
1: My early experience of during my training mentor was horrible. I think he was quite oppressive, but I was determined to become a nurse. Um, there was for example um, there was one black nurse because I trained in Essex there was one black nurse doing a handover and people just started talking over her while she was doing her presentation like presenting the patient that she just cared for and I just just felt sorry for her because after a few minutes she realized that her colleagues were just talking over her she stormed out so then I, I was the other black person sitting there watching all these white nurses. And I thought, if that happened to me, what would you do? That was my question to myself. And she went off and then somebody chased after her. But I just thought they were just disrespectful. So that was my initial experience of not, not seeing good, um, behavior from nurses. But then, um, As I qualified, I I went to work in Reading and I had a very good mentor, but uh, she was Caribbean, very good, very senior nurse. And so I had good, I had mixture of good mentorship subsequently from white and from blacks.
3: Yeah, I think for me, allied healthcare professionals, it's quite a different cohort to nursing. So we know, for example, in our organisation that nearly 60% of nurses are ethnic minority, but obviously that drops to 1.25% for band 18 above. However, with AHPs, only 25% of them are ethnic minority and obviously the London population is 40% ethnic minority. So there is an overall representation at all levels So for the first two to three jobs I was in I was the only ethnic minority dietitian sitting in that team so there was certainly no one that I could look up to and I didn't even know any really ethnic minority dietitians at a more senior level. That did change when I came to London um, as it is a little bit more diverse Um, and I also had a senior manager who found me specifically an ethnic minority mentor who is dietitian by background and she's also director level for equality diversity inclusion in the NHS and she paired me up and at the time she said oh you it'd be helpful for you to specifically have an ethnic minority mentor but I didn't really understand why but now experiencing it I think it was really important and she's a real core Part of my NHS family, really.
0: Cool. And I'm really curious to know, like, um, what made all of you want to apply for the for the fellowship, for the Cofwella like Abini Pratt pen- Fellowship.
1: Um, so, um, in my directorate, women's um, health, I worked in EDI. And so we were looking at the res data. And also within my own career development, I felt, I feel that I was blocked. Not blocked, but not supported to advance to another level. I also had different incidents within the department where, for example, I was working as a research nurse in one department while I was away, my office was changed completely, all my files was moved, um, consent forms went missing, and I was accused of not um, consenting certain patients to a research, which, anyway, um, and I just felt that there was an injustice, but there was no one to support, or uh, p- people did, like uh, my direct line manager understood that I wouldn't have done that, but She's also a small fish in the big pond, so there is only so much help and support. And so when I saw this um, fellowship being advertised, I thought one for my career development, and two for other nurses who are not able to speak up or, um, in terms of getting um, their career progression, because the the advert was that not only will I um, help or develop my own career but also work to improving um access and develop other nurses and it, it i i thought that was a good opportunity for me to do so
2: mm. i'd had i don't i didn't realize i had had poor experiences until i we had so i was always um in my previous job, the only black person. I was always the only black person. And there was, now I can see some absolute, I would call it microaggression, but over aggression, it was aggression against me. So we'd set up policies, you know, I like teaching policy, but we'd set policies and procedures up and people wouldn't follow them. And I'd be saying, well, actually, let's just be fair. But people were not treated fairly. And I clearly wasn't treated fairly, but I didn't see it and then a um another black tutor came into the role and i just saw from the outside looking in the way they treated her the way she was treated was so overtly racist so two people started at the same time black lady came in with a degree started had already started her masters one came in as the daughter of the head of nursing And the white daughter was rising at a rate that you could never imagine. And everything she did, if the black person was doing it, they even sat parallel to each other, but the black one wasn't allowed to sit in that place because she was going to be a fire hazard. But the white one was. Honestly, looking back, you just think, oh my gosh, this probably did happen to me and I just never saw it. Mm. Um, And any time she produced anything... They would turn it around, change it, put their own names against her, her her work products and things and sell it as their own. We went to, because I deliver a lot of training, I took this white nurse's daughter to, well, I didn't take her. They insisted that she came with me with no experience, but we were delivering some education in a church hall. And the amount of swear words that girl came out with, and you could see everyone bristling, you know, because the person who'd booked it was also the local cub leader or something. Um, and the the racism was rife and I decided to quit and it wasn't long after that I quit there. But what happened then is you can see it happening. Now my eyes were wide open and I've gone into another environment where a again, there's discrimination, bias, racism, whatever you want to call it, and I'm not tolerant of it anymore. I wanted to stop it. I actually got the black tutor out of that environment as well. Um, And we set up a, a group, we call it the cultural group, because there's so many different cultures that are combined, but together. And... These, these nurses now have a safe space. They had trust in me. It took me a while to build that trust because obviously if you're coming at management level, no one trusts you. So I took a while so to get to know them, to be part of that crew so that they would trust me. I defended them. I, I could actually acknowledge what they were going through. So when we set up the group, um, I was lucky enough that I could go to some of the nursing and midwifery EDA. I meetings and I was the lowliest banding because banding in hierarchy seems to be a thing in nursing and midwifery but I was the lowest banding person there um, so I had nothing to lose I didn't know anything so I put my hand up a lot I'd in, I, I would actually um, have quite a lot to say so when I heard about the fellowship I thought this is where it's taking me it was just sort of the next natural progression for my own development absolutely because I'd been stagnant in my other role they literally stopped me from doing anything other than what i was doing but actually the fellowship then allowed me to interact with others and uh, and bring them with me on my journey that was a lot sorry raz no that's (laughs) all
3: right Um, it it was interesting to hear nonetheless um so i think a couple of things i think obviously you have the intersectionality between visible disability as well as being an ethnic minority And so I think that I come into quite a few issues on a day-to-day basis. Everything from how do I open the bins in the hospital, which are foot pedal, through to where will I get changed. Um, And after a workplace trauma, I was working with a mentor who's a director in the hospital to start to rebuild my confidence and I was also asked to set up the disability network and at the time we were one of 16 NHS trusts without a disability network as well so those two things simultaneously building up my confidence and learning and growing more about equality diversity and inclusion um, was beginning to spark my interest however I am still relatively newly qualified but I think. Working in the pandemic and working in critical care in the pandemic and I had to upskill pretty quickly because our critical cares had expanded from one to three, um, I think I had become quite burnt out and so I was really just looking for a new change, something different and to take a little bit of a break from clinical work because I think the burnout from critical care was causing a bit of compassion fatigue and uh, because I'm a patient and a clinician I always want to make sure I'm giving 110% to my patients. So when this opportunity came up and actually it wasn't that well advertised in my hospitals uh, as they've recently merged with guys in St Thomas's, it randomly came through through the, um, it's still called the BAME network. Um, I thought I would give it a go and see how it goes and then yeah it was fortunate with all the others to be offered the place Um, and I guess it was for me it was to look at how we can change systems and structures to build race equity into them so that was kind of my goal because I think that it needs to be built into the systems and structures in order to create real change
0: that's really thank you all for your answers like really rich and just like for people that have no knowledge, what, in a few sentences, what is the fellowship? What does it stand for? And
2: The fellowship was, it, it was a, a brainchild of a director of nursing who could see inequality. Um, she's part of the EDI team and knew that something had to be done to build racial equality and competence and compassion just within nursing the res data showed that res is the workforce race equality survey and that data shows constantly that black people are black and minority ethnic people are not treated in the same way Their career progressions are not the same as white people um and that there is actual there's actual data to show that our experiences are always less good than others. Um, It's quite in-depth, it's quite detailed. um, And they look at things like your career progression, have you been harassed and bullied? And um, have you had appropriate support? Things like that. And then we, you know, it's based on surveys that are carried out throughout the country, the NHS surveys. And the res data does show that that black nurses are often the ones who do not... So um, the data shows that a white person on average takes two years for them to to be promoted and a black person, the same role, five years or more to be promoted. Um, so the rate is... So um, the director of nurses saw that there was definitely something that could and should be done about it um, and devised the Colferola Pratt Fellowship with, um, when we've used her because she was the first black nurse to be, um, to qualify at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital.
0: Can you say her name again?
2: In my British accent, Kofarola Abeni Pratt. Yeah.
0: And um, what does she, what does Kofarola Abeni Pratt mean to you all?
1: She's quite inspiring because, um, when I, when I reflect on the time that she would have been doing nursing, I imagine racism was rife and allowed. And she was the first, um, she, she achieved many firsts in her career. She was the first uh, commissioner of um, uh, health in her native Nigeria. But at the time, Nigeria was under British rule. So that was a big thing she was the first to have a british nurse registration as a nurse and uh when you h- listen to her history she um also like traveled worldwide uh, transatlantic and she um became first of um like um the international nursing um committee and she did Many uh, conferences and stuff, and I I'm just thinking in those days women would ha- not have had such a central role outside of their homes, and also to be doing the first in Europe and abroad. I, I I'm for me she's quite inspiring.
2: For me she's brave. Yeah, and I feel brave now, following yeah. in her footsteps. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. I can't imagine in that day and age coming to a racist country and still doing as well as she did and then taking it further and carrying on and not letting it win or not letting it stop her. She achieved so much in her life and I I, I just feel that her bravery is... The most Mm. outstanding thing for me because i think it does take bravery to be a woman Mm. to be a black woman to be a black woman from africa um i think it takes a lot of guts to do what she did i mean it's not
1: documented anywhere i've read but i could imagine maybe she had an accent and and i can imagine i mean even today we would have patients who bring their relatives in and ask we don't want a black nurse to look after all, so I imagine in those days it would have happened, and it would have been okay we'll we'll not we'll they'll just go along with it now I think people push back and say no you you're not allowed to request a white nurse to look after your grandmother, for example
2: mm. and you have to do that
3: to sort of honor those that couldn't mm. you've got to push back. I think they covered it really, but yeah, I think the key words which come to mind is strength and the fact that she was such a big pioneer, yeah. um, for all the reasons that Jill and Charlotte mentioned.
0: Have you guys seen? There's a picture of her that I am just obsessed with because <laughs> I just
3: brought it because it's
0: I hope I brought it. Oh, did into that one? Oh, well, there's one at the back yeah. there. Yeah not a very good printout, Yeah. What, yeah. What, yeah what do you think cool. when you look at, like, do, can you describe her, let me give you one as well, Ralph, I've got, <laughs> oh, okay, I've got one for you as well, Jill. lovely, thank you. So
3: what I see is a fierce, strong woman with kind eyes.
2: Yeah, yeah, her eyes,
1: and she's quite stylish, with <laughs> <laughs> the hat and... The ruffled uh, shirt under her jacket, I think, is quite stylish.
2: You can see a determination there, you know. I, I, I can see there's a wry smile on her face mm-hmm. that sort of, to me, says, no matter who tried to stop me, I achieved, mm-hmm. I did. And it, it's just a massive pride that these women were there before us to to start the trail. You know, if Kofa you know, didn't come to the UK, who knows who and when would have come and how much further behind perhaps we could have been, but I believe she would have opened doors. Um, In Nigeria she was the first woman to be a minister as a health minister, so she was changing she was paving the way for people in the uk and back home in in nigeria she's amazing she's amazing she did a lot of this on her own yeah. you know she didn't wait for people to support her
3: she did what she did because she wanted to do it and i think what's quite nice is that essentially this has kind of come to light over the past couple of years because and do tell me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, Roisin, who's our manager who set up the fellowship, essentially kind of brought her legacy back. So Mm -hmm. um, I had never heard of her, and I remember Roisin saying that she was almost like a forgotten part of history. Mm um and i know that there are lots of other people um i know ruth has um done an amazing book but i think she's brought her back to life within guys and st thomas's where she trained yeah, um and i'm glad that we that she's done that and we've got her legacy and to kind of follow that on um and to make sure she's not forgotten about again
2: yeah i remember the conversation um in one of the less midwifery midwifery edi groups and rosheen started to mention colferola And I would be sitting, because we're all on teams then, because a lot of this was during the pandemic, and um, googling frantically, who is this person? (laughs) I couldn't spell it, so I couldn't find her. Uh It took a little while. And then you think, yeah, she needs to be remembered. She needs to be acknowledged. She needs to be a part of the Trust, because she was a huge part for us. For me, she's a huge part seeing black people ahead of me is what matters and then seeing black people coming in young black people because i'm sort of in the middle now Mm. so seeing young black people and brown people and anyone really but it's more important that they see us Mm. Um, and you know, I haven't got a great story to tell. I haven't got a story like for a roller. I left Manchester and came to London for the love of a man. I didn't come for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, never, I'm going to move to London. And it, so there's no great story, but I still want to be a continuation of that. She started it and we will continue.
0: When I was researching her, I found that her father didn't want her. To train No, he didn't. As a nurse. He wanted wh- her
2: to be a teacher.
0: Do you know why that was?
2: I'm not sure. I can't remember if Dr. Roof told us.
0: I think it was because he um that was it. He thought if you train as a nurse, all the jobs back in Nigeria for nurses are taken by white like, expat yeah, women. Okay, yeah. So he didn't want her to have that fate. Ah. But then she just did it anyway and came back mm. and lo and behold became...
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They answered to her.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing that I found interesting was that she already had a husband and a child, mm. yeah. which was very unusual for mm. young women training at that time.
1: Yeah, mm. to be That's out right. of the home. Yeah.
0: So she, took, she left her child with a... Lovely childminder, and there's the matron, Mrs. Smythe, was really impressed that she <laughs> never asked for special leave mm. to go and visit her child. She was so dedicated to her studies, mm. and to think that she did that, yeah,
2: yeah. I often wonder whether she wanted to and felt that she shouldn't because she would be held back because of it. Mm. But whatever reason, good for her for showing her determination sometimes you've got to sacrifice something to gain much more yeah
0: Yeah, you get the feeling that she had to be two or three times as good as everybody Mm.
2: without a doubt yeah
0: around her yeah um so tell me about the day that you first met each other can you remember
2: we were went to conference didn't we yeah we went
1: to um Whitehall uh, industry group, industry group conf- EDI conference, and that's where we first met. So it was a bit weird, wasn't it? It <laughs> wasn't weird, <laughs> but
2: because we were there to do something else, we didn't really get much chance to interact with each other, so we kind of introduced ourselves, like, you're a fellow, we're a fellow, yay! Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was week later when we, because we only worked together one day a week, we spread the whole group spreads across the week but we're all together one day a week so we yeah we make that count so we've grown really so initially because i'm a bit of an observer so i sit back and figure people out before i start jabbering on um and it took us a while to sort of gel not because we didn't like each other but we just are strong characters and I think it needed to be a strong character to get through the interview process to get on mm. um, so we came with our thoughts and, and feelings and mm. us just our unapologetic selves and by the time we are five months down the line I think we're a brilliant team I really do
1: I think mm. we get along because there are certain um, we have different characters but each of us um, have something that we bring Mm. even if it's just to keep Mm. everyone else calm
2: (laughs) Mm, mm. so that's why we share the same values when it comes to edi which is why we're there of one thing we can agree that we want to work together to to make a long lasting difference you know we just don't want to build a module Mm. Um, that people can refer to at the end of their training program or you know attend this edi module and you've it's we want to as raz said uh, we want to make a difference from within and throughout
3: and i think what's different in clinical work is that especially for dietitians um, and i think for nurses as well is that you're quite an autonomous practitioner so how you work with teams is very different we'll all do our each individual part and then feed into a team Mm -hmm. whereas this way of working is is more like project management which I don't think many of us had really done before Mm -hmm. so it was a new way of working new way of working with a team you can't just silo off really and do bits and pieces on your own you can do a bit but you can't do everything on your own you need to kind of work together so I think that was the other side that my brain had to switch to was about how do i work in this kind of environment of project work as opposed to being an autonomous practitioner where i see my patients feedback to the doctors and nurses and then that's kind of my role um so yeah but i think i completely agree i think we all have so many different skills such a diversity in skill set diversity in thought but our values are are very similar so i think that supports us to help one another and hopefully um do the best that we can do and so tell me
0: more about like your individual character the individual char- like characters and first impressions and how it works on a like a human level
3: what did you think of us <laughs> i think because for me i have been in the edi space for about a year prior so i think i came at it and you can tell me if i'm being unfair a little bit of a different level um because I've listened to conversations from a director board level being part of the EDI steering committee I in some ways had quite a clear vision um about things I wanted to do and wanted to disrupt within the system and structures um and I think for me I probably came across as quite strong from that respect and needed to wind it down a little bit (laughs) and um i think i still have those strong thoughts and feelings and character and i think that's probably again due to the intersectionality because whilst there is the res data there's also the des data which is the workforce disability equality standard and actually the most affected people within the organization is the intersectionality it is those who are ethnic minority and disabled so that is the most minoritized group so i think that because i'm probably most affected my drive to make things better i want to like do things at a million miles an hour and that's not always possible um so i think that's probably how i came across um to be honest my first impressions from you guys was just genuinely that um I thought everyone was quite nice. Um, I just remember on the first day when I did meet you at the conference, like, I was just very confused about who everyone was um, and we didn't have any faces to name. So I was just very, very confused on that first day. Um, but yeah. Um, I
1: want to say that As a research nurse, I am so used to being in charge of the projects. I set up the project. I am the one, the external contact, the sponsors outside of the the trust, and organize meetings and then start my recruitment and then tell the doctors you have a patient. And I'm always organizing people. On the other hand, with the fellowship, I find it hard to um, be part of... A team where I find it hard where I'm not in charge or I'm not telling people what to do, <laughs> and so I keep quiet, and and I so if if you ask these two, they will say I'm the quietest one in the group. Yes. And and another thing I struggle with even now as a nurse, you you are indoctrinated to keep quiet if. If you are being um, microaggressed, you're experiencing microaggression, you know there is injustice. You keep quiet because you know that the person might interview you later on and you, you won't get that job. So I find it hard to even, even though I'm on the fellowship, I find it hard to talk about anti-racism. I find it hard to um, talk about because I'm not under any illusion that everybody has embraced this fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when my fellowship ends at the end of in March, and I'm looking for a job, I'm conscious that people will look on my CV and see, you've done a Kofa Orola, and it, I don't know who is... So I'm not... I'm not... Um, Although I know that all these things exist, uh, the microaggression, the, the people who changed my folders around and threw away consent forms were the ones that actually interviewed me for a band-7 job and then declined. But then I'm still in that band-7 role as we speak today, being paid to low, lower band. So I struggle with all... Um, I struggle with all the, the... I don't want to say rhetoric, but I struggle with all. If I don't see changes, I, I, I um get disillusioned quite quickly, because it, it, on the on the surface said, we are saying that anti-racism and anti anti um, discrimination, but I know on underneath there is still all this going on, and I know we can't change it in a few few months, but even Even within our circles, I know of people who are not, who haven't bought into it completely, the fellowship. So for me, I keep quiet sometimes just because I am trying to process all these things going on.
2: It's true, because I've always kept quiet. In my previous job, there was literally no one to talk to. You know, you're the only black person in an entire hospital in in sort of middle management Mm. like who's going to listen to me so when I came to the fellowship um, I wanted to hear what everyone else had to say my daughter's the same age as Raz and they really she makes me laugh every time I see her because they're so similar Uh and that's what I love you know that real passion I
1: love that about Raz is that she doesn't hold back Mm. um, and she said to, to this morning, I said to her, "I don't learn well when people speak um in a certain way. I switch off if i if I detect it's like an attack against me, I switch off and I go quiet and she said I do the opposite and I thought my if, when I was 27 I probably would have benefited from being on this fellowship yeah. now but I'm too old to change qu- so quickly. <laughs> we need a ras it's like We do.
2: Yeah, you make the difference.
1: You do. I mean, you don't realize yeah. you, you don't realize you say no but I am mm. learning from you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i've been
3: too nice but <laughs> no, i learned no. from them because <laughs> they also have so much more life experience they're far more measured than me ah. um everyone who knows me knows that i can explode quite quickly as well and actually i've learned a lot around needing to strategize a lot more first on the fellowship as well and not to jump in too quickly as well and um, especially in the edi space the evidence base is not amazing so if you ask okay well let's put an intervention in to help anti-racism it's quite hard to tell you what the right one is because there's not a very good evidence base so it's for me it's kind of working with these people have also taught me a really important skill is to take a step back and actually think first so they're being mm. very kind but, but i
1: think but i think what she doesn't appreciate is that the 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 way she approaches it Makes change come quicker. Yeah. When 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 it when it comes to me, it would take maybe a hundred years the, <laughs> with, with with this attitude of, oh, I I mustn't say that. How do I say this without offending? Absolutely. And sometimes you have to offend, or sometimes you have to um, you call ha- it out. Call it out. So mm-hmm. so this is what I admire because. Uh, I have thoughts and I think, mm, maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe you will go back to so-and-so and, you know, because you've been, you, you've been su- subjected to, to certain things. And, and as, as, as I said before, in nursing, you're told just keep your head down. If you want to progress, you keep your head down and you just work and work mm-hmm. and work. And sometimes that's not what you need to do. Sometimes you need to call things out and get the right context on your side. Uh, This is where allyship comes in to to make changes.
3: I will say, though, I think that you guys are quite hard on yourself because I'm also aware of, I don't want to offend you by saying different ages or generations, but as in, obviously, back in your day when you had qualified, that was a very different time Mm. and a very different narrative around race and racism. And we know that things have moved forward a lot sadly since the murder of george floyd Mm -hmm. and the covid19 pandemic really showing the health inequity from those from ethnic minority background and those who are disabled as well so um it's really nice what they're saying but also i think we need to be mindful that it was a different time and actually mm. potentially had you been speaking out when you were my age, the chances are that you would have been victimized, the, the chances mm. yeah. of being victimized were a lot higher mm-hmm. or being asked to kind of move
1: yeah.
3: out of the job. So you can't be too hard on yourself from that respect as well. For sure, cause
2: when I was younger and I was still working with these people cause I worked with them for 20 odd years and honestly I should have said a lot more then but it was like these are my people these are my babysitters you know I I see them for seven eight hours a day we used to all go out together socially you we just became oh too much um I can call it out now and that's the best thing about being in the fellowship, seeing all, hearing all these experiences, seeing the different ways that you can approach an issue. And actually now I'm so empowered to do something about it, it was before I used to take it all home. The burden would be mm. then, you know, it oh, happened to me today, you oh, know, happened again today. This is what's, but now it's like, actually, no, I'm going to call it out and no matter how uncomfortable you feel it is. What's the point of me being in a fellowship where we're trying to 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 change this? We're trying to disrupt this. We're trying to 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 embed really good practice in everyone, whether you want to or not. It should just be there and so normal. And I'm so focused on doing that now. I don't necessarily necessarily want to go back to dental nursing. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to some. I used to always think, you know, if I was child of the sixties, um, or oh, I was a, a young adult in the sixties, I'd love to be in a Black Panther. You know, I can <laughs> see that in me, but that was sort of pushed out of me, squashed out of me. It was like suppressed. Mm-hmm. But it's come back. There's a real mm-hmm. fire in my belly now, and that is seeing and hearing different perspectives. So, you know listening to Raz, she brings it all to to date Mm. listening to charlotte she puts a a similar like sort of share your experiences Mm. and it kind of combines it and makes me want to be a better me makes me want to change everyone makes me want to have those conversations with people
3: That's very powerful Um, thank you (laughs) yeah the one thing i also just wanted to quickly add which i forgot to say was just that i feel like language has evolved over the past couple of years as well so before black lives matter using the word racist or racism i would never use that word and yet i would see it i remember um you know a dietetic student who was a friend who sadly uh, failed off the course in her placements and I remember being like i don't know why that is i know there's a race element but i would just never use the word racism because Mm. it felt far too powerful and so i think again something which has changed is the way we use our language around racism these days and how um that has evolved over the past couple of years as well and whilst it might be uncomfortable for other people to hear it is important that we also say how it is yeah
0: And I'd love to hear more about the kind of specific interventions that you're putting in place and the th- and the things that you're really passionate about, you know.
2: We came in it thinking, this is again how this group works mm-hmm. so well, we came in thinking empowerment. We need to empower black nurses and minority ethnic nurses because they're not getting these jobs and it must be because they're not suitably trained, qualified... That is so, you've heard Charlotte just naturally already came into the profession. She uh, she already had a degree. They're well-educated, they're just not getting the opportunity. So we were, we then faltered because mm. the whole point was to empower. But actually, you know, we don't need empowering. Mm. We needed the allyship. That's because yeah. in this trust, as Raza said, when you rise to a band. A A and above, we're only represented 1%. You know, there's only 1% of us there. So who is saying, oh, when I look at my team, all of the band sixes and sevens are white and all of the band two, threes and fours are from a minority ethnic background. Who's saying that? It's not being challenged, Mm. you know, and it's clearly visible, but very few people would have stuck their neck out to call it out, apart from Roisin. Roisin had to work on that. To, mm. So we're working on the allyship as well, so get in.
1: But I also
2: think it's interesting that it had
1: to take a white nurse to, yeah. to, be, to be recognized. And over the years, black nurses have been saying, I am being, race, mm-hmm. I'm being discriminated against, and it's just dismissed. Mm-hmm. And so when a white nurse says it, then it sounds different. And then yeah. people pay attention. Yeah, uh, when 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 it's it's well documented, we're, we're, so many black staff have said racism exists in the NHS, but it takes a white person, and then we're we uh, The attention is given. Yeah.
0: The data has <laughs> been showing it for, for forty or more years. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. But so what? So what? How do you understand allyship? Like what?
3: well this is a very good question so um i think to begin with yep so i think what we all thought the fellowship was going to be about we've kind of then turned it on its head and realized that we're gonna that's not actually what we want to do and we want to focus on these two strands of empowerment and allyship um i will just say that our manager, Roisin, has done a lot of work in the nursing and midwifery space, and um, the allied healthcare professional space, is at a very different place. And just we've ju- just done some engagement work and been presenting that around lived experience, and that's the first time that's been done for allied healthcare professionals. So it's the start of the journey, as opposed to nursing and midwifery, which is which has been going on for a little bit longer due to Roisin and other colleagues. Um, so in terms of allyship, I think this was something... That we were quite interested in exploring a little bit more. Um, so there was a survey in the States done by a woman called Minda Hartz, and she had es- essentially explained that she was she's a black woman, and she had explained that her lived experience was that it tended to be white men who helped her up the ladder. Um, and when she had done a survey to ethnic minority women and white women, she found that 80% of white women felt that they are allies towards ethnic minority women. But ethnic minority women felt that only 20% of white women were allies towards them. So there was already a disconnect. So we listened to that and thought that that was quite interesting. And then we took that a step further. So we did a survey with nurses and AHPs around allyship. And again, 80% of white nurses and AHPs feel that they are allies towards ethnic minority nurses and AHPs. What we then did is we gave six definitions of allyship and asked them to choose which one resonates with them most. So there was one which came out as the most popular and then we filtered for white nurses and AHPs. And what was really interesting is that the most popular definition changed, but then what wasn't really A lot more interesting, again, is that not a single ethnic minority nurse or AHP had chosen the most popular definition that white nurses and HPs chose as their most popular definition. So I think when we think about allyship, I think one of the biggest things is probably that we're not on the same page, Mm -hmm. we're not talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, when 80% of these white nurses and HPs call themselves an ally, why is that? Is that because they've named that themselves? Is that because someone had called them that? Is that because multiple people had called them that? And actually, I think something we've seen is kind of on white ally programs. There's a quite a high dropout rate. I think in our organisation it was thirty mm. percent. And actually, if eighty percent of white nurse and HPS already think that they're allies, why would they change? So I mm. think even before moving on to allyship and actually looking at some kind of intervention. There needs to be something about bringing us all to the same page, and are we actually talking and yeah. singing off the same hymn sheet?
0: And, and what? And so, what? What is your definition? Like, how? Sorry to put you on the spot, but I it's a tricky one, isn't it?
2: It's a tricky one because I think everyone sees it differently based mm. on their personal and lived experience. And you know, if you'd have asked me what an ally was three years ago, I'd have said oh, it's someone that helps me up the career ladder just very simplistic but actually now i don't know what i see as a true ally i don't know um from my experience the one person that thinks that they are an ally um really is not an ally in any shape or form and actually as soon as i step away from what they want i am an enemy if they were sat in this room, they would tell you 100% that they're an ally. So it really, so my head is kind of like, I don't know what a good ally will look like right now. I think it's someone that would, I think at the moment, if you ask me now, it is that person that will champion you, that will step in front of you and step between you and a, a, a barrier and call out what they see from a good place not just that you know that's the woke thing to do but actually they can see what we experience what we feel and they are willing to do something about that they want the same for us that they would want for themselves mm. i i think an ally to
1: me would be somebody who recognises my ambition who also recognize my skills and um see the barriers in place and try to um, try to support me to get around these barriers but not put putting me in a position or trying to put me in a position where I don't qualify and I will fail yeah so so for example um, when I when I had that incident I would have liked um, somebody within that team to say, well, actually, I sat in this office with Charlotte, and I know her, but I didn't feel I had anyone in my corner, and and and, so that would be it. For me, it would be a good ally, um, and, and the other thing I will say about allies, because I have good allies in my personal life, because I live in England on my own. My families are all in the U.S., and... So I don't expect them to know everything about my culture. And I have friends who I would say is sometimes inappropriate with their language and I would point it out and they'll be like, I'm so sorry. And they're more remorseful and trying to get it right (laughs) because you won't always get it right. It's like, I would say I'm an ally to someone who is from a different uh, background as mine but so I won't know everything about them, but it's the willingness to to learn
2: about me. I even have a friend who we went for afternoon tea recently. She's white, she's my age, and said, I don't see colour, Jill. I see you as <laughs> white. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like what? What? <laughs> this is not right, and I yeah, would yeah. never have thought that from her. Yeah. She's the person that would say, Hang on a minute, who are you calling black? Yeah. You know, she would do that, yeah. but I just think that she just, yeah. and what I tried to explain is, I think you see me as British, mm. not as white. Um, but yeah, like you yeah. Said, she was super remorseful, she sent me lots yeah. of information, and yeah. I don't, you know, um, so it's funny because she thinks she's an ally, yeah. but then she doesn't see my color, yeah.
3: I think it's also I mean I agree with everything they've said so far I think to add to it it's someone who is willing to give up their seat at the table for you as Mm -hmm. well because that will really support to make a difference it's someone who talks about you in a positive light whether you're there or not Mm -hmm. so also about you to other people behind their back so really supports to champion Mm -hmm. not just in front of you but um, behind closed doors as well. Um, it's someone who understands you to the best of their ability and looks out for opportunities for you and will also say your name in the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: the only thing is the difference is that um, some allies or some people who perceive themselves as allies can be like um, white savior and I don't want that uh, either where they're doing something because they're doing it to you or uh, without acknowledging your capabilities as a a practitioner, as an individual, that you are able to fight for yourself. But if should you need the support, they are available.
2: Yeah, I think sometimes they just don't. Although, you know, you can have an ally unless they know you a little Mm -hmm. bit about you as a human, but also you in your culture, mm. you won't get it right. And it's mm. the people that take the time to, to find that out um, that are more likely to get it right, you know. And I just laugh because any sort of EDI things I go to and we start talking about, you know, cultural awareness is always about food. And that is, I know, <laughs> it's like literally my bugbear is always about food. If I say in Caribbean, they say jerk chicken. You know, I'd win any bet on that. <laughs> and it's like, no, get to know the human, get to know the facts, get to know that one Caribbean island is very different to another, get mm-hmm. to know that black people, Africans, okay. um, ca- black Caribbeans and Africans are very different. Mm-hmm. Then you'll understand us, but actually you're still in that space where we're still categorised by colour. Mm. And a true ally would would be able to to represent an individual or a or a culture or a group of people correctly
3: and it's really important for that in terms of health inequalities as well because if you're just lumping together south asians for example actually it's not necessarily south asians for example if we look at the prevalence of smoking Um, the two top uh, people who have the highest prevalence of smoking are Black Caribbeans and Bangladeshis. Mm. So if you're just categorising us all as Black or South Asian, actually you're not really getting the data you actually need Mm -hmm. to support best care going forward. Um, And so it's really important that you see past that and be curious to understand people rather than just a surface level.
1: Yeah. And... Recently, we had a celebration in the trust, and it was for Windrush Day. They were um, doing something with the statue at Waterloo, and um, it was really upsetting for me when I looked, because I think there were six or there was a few people in the chapel. There was not, I, I from far, the video I was sent, there was not a single white person, mm-hmm. and and I thought these nurses gave up their time and everything to come to the UK to work, and this is the c- kind of service they deserve.
2: But we have a whole float for Florence Nightingale every year. Every year we champions celebrate Florence Nightingale, and just that one—I mean, of the six <laughs> people that were in chapel for Windrush, I'd taken two, so I was fifty percent of yeah. the, the people there, and it was excruciating. So.
1: On the one hand,
2: they tell us, forget
1: about slavery because it, it happened so long ago, but we can't forget about Florence. But 60 mm. years ago, there was all these black nurses who came after the war to work and rebuild Britain and the service you give them yeah. it's just, was just... So then those things really make me demoralised.
2: Yeah, because they didn't... like My mom didn't wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to go to England. They were asked to come. You know they were recruited in and my mum said oh it was all over the tv it was in all of the newspapers you know come to england the streets played with gold literally there was this real england's going to be But well, i don't think anyone who was recruiting in had spoken to the british people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to find out exactly how they felt about this and <laughs> it was just too much for them clearly so you know the the Windrush generation I look at that statue when I come across the Thomas's every day and the first time I saw it I cried I literally thought about everything they went through literally walking the streets trying to find somewhere to live you know for doors to be shut and they still then would probably encounter that landlord that shut the door in their face and care for them yeah we had no discrimination whatsoever we did not come we guns and even you know when he took us from the slave ships we were rich we were educated we we had everything we needed and then to be brought here and told that we were primitives and you know we had our own languages we could tell the time still now Mm -hmm. you know I'll go to Barbados people like oh hi son it's x time and I'm like whoa you know Mm -hmm. we did all of that and we're still treated like Mm second-class citizens are worse and it, it's sad it's really sad and it's upsetting and yeah when I went into that chapel and there uh, there was no one there to celebrate that I just felt really demoralized we last year in we did a post of some of the the staff dental nurses just did a little celebration of black nurses in history so we went from Colfer up to Jacqueline Dunkley-Bent who's the, ch- the midwife that delivers the royal babies you know mm. and there's I think there's 1600 people in the dental directorate and two people sent an email two it was acknowledged by two people and that's because oh, yeah. they knew me and it's that that you think you still don't think we're worth it you mm. still are not grateful
0: And who else should we, like, be naming and bringing in, starting with your mum and...
2: Oh, Doreen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's, like, there's just... I don't know. I think every single person who came here and chose to come here based Mm -hmm. on perhaps the lies they were told, but nonetheless they stayed, they should be celebrated. Colferola was the pioneer, she really was a pioneer and she started something great we want to continue but every single nurse that works here, no matter where they're from, if they, you know, mm. they need to be celebrated, we need to be celebrated. Yeah.
0: Mm.
2: And, and it's not just nurses, it's every single person in healthcare, even down to that person who brings you a cup of tea in the morning when you're on a ward. That person who gets up at crazy hours o'clock to come to tend to you, and no matter what abuse they get, they come back.
1: And even the nurses, the the minority nurses that died during COVID, Mm. because some of them didn't have the right equipment to go and do their nursing, but they turned up to their shifts, even though they had children who
2: needed them still. Mm. And it was the thing, like... During COVID, the redeployment was a little bit harsh. So you had no skills, but you were sent to an ICU ward or mm-hmm. you know you're sent to critical care or a COVID ward, and you're like, "What do we know?" Why, genuinely, you're you're sending us onto mm-hmm. a front line. We have no knowledge of what we're doing. All we can do is help. But
1: yet, if we, a year earlier you had applied for ICU, they'd have told you no. Had no skills. Yeah
2: yeah it's it's just bizarre Mm. you know I remember a dental nurse going on to a ward and her first task was to dress a man who'd passed very recently sort of within the last hour and that she's the most resilient strong woman that I'd ever met but that broke her Mm. that broke her you know and do you know what she got no acknowledgement it was just that that's your job, away you go, well done, you know. And they're the ones that need to be celebrated because mm. had she said no, it would have been a disciplinary, deserting your duty or whatever it is. I don't know, but she would have been treated really badly. So she stepped up
3: it's and that's hard. what
2: everyone did. They stepped up mm. and then as soon as COVID was over, it's like, I'm political now, but our Prime Minister was on a ward. He was cared for by a um, lady of South Asian origin, named his child after two of the doctors, never acknowledged that nurse, and that nurse was with him every day of his stay. Never. And it's that, you know, we're taken for granted. We're sent out, you know, they'll do that. Because we rarely say no, Yeah especially our generation, I hope that you guys would, well, I know for sure Raz and my daughter would say no, but we rarely say no. We have a sense of duty. Yeah, uh.
0: yeah it's really shocking, those seeing that documentary, mm. Exposed. Did you see that documentary?
3: Yeah, Exposed. Yeah. It's the one we're hoping to maybe bring it to our own organisation, actually. I'm waiting for Jay to, um, our deputy C, um, chief Nurse to look at whether we can actually screen it across guys and Tommy's.
0: Are you guys all right? Do you want to take a comfort break or have a glass of water? Yeah, you're all right. Yeah, are you alright for for, for, for are you yeah. sure. Um. So the other big word that I wrote on my book was empowerment. <laughs> mm.
2: Yeah, I feel empowered. In I feel very much in the right place now i know that the words to use i can recognize what is going on out there now and i feel empowered to act but also we want to empower the nurses that are there that are scared to speak up they're experiencing Mm. discrimination bias um, that are not progressing well in their career when they should be and we want them to have a voice.
1: I feel empowered um, on the fellowship. I've learned a lot. So so normally I'm in one directorate and when you're, for example, I work in women's directorate, I don't know anything else about any part of the hospital. <laughs> the fellowship has exposed different uh, directorates to me and also I've learned um, so I run a career clinic, a career trolley, where I go to different departments and, and discuss the opportunities that are available or how to get to the next levels. Um, and so I do feel empowered. I do feel I can speak up. I'm learning to speak up mm-hmm. a bit more, but it's taken me a while to do so.
2: Yeah, I'm empowered with, our, with the... Dental Directorate Cultural Group, mm. because I sit there and the only reason I was asked is because I kind of fit the brief, if that makes sense. I wasn't a band eight, um, I wasn't a band four, so sat me in the middle. And that, normally, I wouldn't join a group like that. It's just not my vibe at all. Um, but actually, what I heard was all the stories that these nurses had to say, but they'd never, ever had a space to speak up. And they were saying why should i apply for jobs we're never going to get them because people have already made their minds up about what kind of character we are and those nurses with strong characters were always suppressed oppressed they were always overlooked undermined and having that group initially when it started i wasn't on the fellowship it was quite a nice green you know what do you want to do with your career um, but now it's gone, it's it's changed, It's I've brought in a lot of new thought, I've given a lot more space for them to speak, it used to be every other month, I meet them every month, we have focus groups, we, we have one-to-ones, it's changed and what's happening now is these nurses are actually now looking outside, looking above, like they used to all keep their heads down and just... As soon as they pop their heads up, it would be a target. What are you doing? Where are you going? One was yesterday, a black lady yesterday was told, don't spend too much time on the toilet. And I just thought, so the first thing they now do is come to me. So there is so much change there. It's going to come across as negative, but that change is so needed. I'm Mm. so happy that people feel empowered and they're not prepared to put up with that poor treatment.
0: It's interesting, I don't even know how to express this, but the bits that are in between work, like the lunch times, the social times, the toilet times, like all those things that are so important to the sense that we have of a mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Like, does <laughs> are those spaces that you're trying to make more inclusive as well, or is that...
1: I something? was going to say, when I heard... Spending more time. So black women, uh, as you get older, you're likely to have fibroids, Mm -hmm. which causes you to bleed heavily, which causes you to need to empty your bladder. And the idea that someone tells you you've been in the toilet too long. Yeah. Yeah. That
2: department needs some education. (laughs) Well, it's going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But also we have a very, dental nursing has changed, um, When I first started in the 80s, it was very much a blonde, white girl, blue-eyed, white girl's profession, and they'd marry the dentists, and then the next batch would come in and marry the students, and (laughs) and then it started to change, and I was one of the few black... In Manchester, there was two black nurses in the whole school, in London, there was three, maybe, and then it started to change, and now it's changed so much. There's a very large Nepalese population, and just their culture I hear them all what have you brought for lunch because they all share the same food someone brings rice someone brings meat blah, 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 blah they sit together And when you sit together you might slip into your native tongue and they try to outlaw that not the the management but the management came to me to say there's complaints about them talking in their own language what should we do and I said nothing you know it's their lunch hour let them be a lot of them have married and come over here and have have forged a career and let them be, you know, mm-hmm. but the fact that those questions are still being asked and they are a group that never... Or no, they're a group that rarely speak up, very rarely hear from them. Yeah. It's so sad.
0: I can't believe that, saying that they couldn't talk.
2: Yeah, because yeah. we do have... Um, standards in the trust and it says that you can't talk in your own language but it's in public spaces Mm. but you know if there's a patient you don't want to be talking in Mm. in a different language because that patient doesn't know what's going on we get that but in a staff area come on
1: the the Mm. group that always gets this being told to them is the Filipinos
2: and then you get a space when you're on your own and what can you do Mm -hmm. yeah and you haven't got anyone Find it really weird, you know. It's like you, I, when I I've stopped taking my lunch because every time I took my lunch, in someone's nose would be in it, and it's really off-putting. It's just food. <laughs> you know? No, you can't try it. No, I don't want to share it. No, I'm not going to make it for everyone because again, that's the thing. Like we'd have social events, and my managers would be like, "We'll bring the salad." Another the one would bring a block of cheese. Jill, you make the chicken. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> what is it with you holding <laughs> chicken? Mm-hmm. And it just got to the point when it's so typical, but it it's still a microaggression. It's still that assumption that you are going to deliver what they perceive to be mm. a black thing, and then that's all they value you for. Mm. They don't value you as the human behind Mm -hmm. your actions, like that caring, compassionate me that would stand up for anyone that was in trouble, literally anyone, um, they don't see that as a a positive. They see that as a hindrance. Mm. You know, it's that, oh, Jill's talking again. Well, yes, I'm talking again because what you've just said is wrong. And I want to tell you that it's wrong, you know, but you see that speaking up as negative because you always see it in a negative, but actually speaking up helps you. Yeah. But when a black woman speaks up, it's not necessarily welcomed. Yeah. And when two black women are in a room, geez, <laughs> yeah, quite
0: harsh. Have you got anything to like to add about the cafeteria spaces or those?
3: Just concurring. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um. Just one, one, one or two other things. I was just wondering because I like to ask everybody a question about their favourite time of day. Mm-hmm. Just because time is quite significant for nurses, isn't it? Mm. What is the what is your favourite time of day? I
1: work nine to five. And so I enjoy my job um I'm not a morning person at all <laughs> so I don't come awake until about 11 o'clock and so usually when I make appointments with um, patients unless they have to go to work I would say come at half eight but I'm not there <laughs> like I would ask other nurses to see that patient for me. So I start my clinics about 11 o'clock and then I would be in clinic until about 3 o'clock and then I write up my notes. So my favorite time of the day is interacting with my patients between 11 and 3 o'clock when I've had my coffee.
2: See <laughs> so yeah, i I'm not a morning person in that I don't want to get up and chat to everyone. I'm not like morning, but I am happiest when I've risen naturally. So I always buy um, really thin curtains or I'll sleep with the blinds open and things. So as soon as the sun rises, like this time of year, it's beautiful. I'll wake up at five o'clock and I come to naturally and that's me time. Just me, my thoughts, what I'm going to do for the day how I feel, what I'm going to wear, what crystal I'm going to wear. Um, and they're just having that. Sometimes it's an hour where, honestly, all I need to think about is me. So although I wouldn't get up and speak to anyone if the phone rang, I'd be fuming. I definitely don't want to interact with people. It's the very rare time that I get to myself.
0: Like that, like that Jill. Wondering what crystal crystal to wear. (laughs) Today I knew
2: I didn't need one that was sort of a protective one. I just needed one that Mm -hmm. was... So I have my dirty quartz on today, just... And it's got a crack in it, which means it's actually been doing its job. It's Mm -hmm. absorbed quite a lot.
3: Yeah. Um, Mine would probably be the end of the day when I'm finishing work at like 5 o'clock. And that's not because I don't enjoy work. I do but I think it's just that sense of relief and being able to reflect and go home to refresh for the next day and to, I guess, take some time to think about what has gone well and not so well and then what you can do better tomorrow. Lovely.
0: And then the other question that I'd like to ask everyone is about sound. And the first question is, what sound takes you back to your childhood?
2: I love this. I love old, proper reggae music. Not Bob Marley. Proper dub. The Abyssinian's Wailing Soul. Really deep dub. I just remember being a five-year-old and announcing to everyone I didn't like the spelling of my name, Gillian with a G. I'm going to call myself Gillian with a J. And everyone's like, cool. And I was surrounded by cousins who at the time were in their 20s and all had it was like in the 70s it was just the most amazing time and we used to live listen to that and a lot of 70s soul rolls Royce, if you're wondering that Um, but it's when we started to discover Rastafari and a lot of the music was educational and it just taught and I I, when I was a kid, I was a kid, I was tiny, like, and I shouldn't necessarily have been that aware, but I was that aware that this music was like, I didn't know that, I didn't know, you know, and yeah, the sound I like is reggae music and laughter. The two go hand in hand. I love the sound of
1: nature. So when, I, as an adult, I realized the sound of the sea. When I go to hotels, any, any any holiday, I want to stay on in a hotel where I can keep the window open to hear the sound of the beach. And I was telling my mom one day, and she said, you know, when you were born, you were born on the Caribbean Sea, that the maternity ward where she was, she was in labor for two days. She said, but my bed was right next to the sea. And I thought, that's it. That's why I love the sound of the sea. Mm-hmm. It's the first sound I probably heard of nature. Yeah. And then um, it, in Belize, there's the jungles and you can hear the makash uh, making that calling sound. And then the other one is uh, when it rains, the, the sound on the rooftop, because it's like zinc in some parts. Yeah, like, and you can hear the sound and you could just sleep even more yeah. and on the window pane is the, the sound of nature when i retire i'm going to leave england and go far away and i must be near nature i must yeah. i want to, even if it's a hut i want to be on the beach and then when i'm ready i'll take a bus ride into the jungles and then come back to nature in the evening yes <laughs>
0: i hear that no i just wanted to see how you're getting on oh another five ten minutes is that all right yeah yeah that's fine i just want Do to want make sure i start? uh oh, so no no carry on all right mm-hmm. um oh can you shut? Show... yeah it's yeah.
1: so, nature for me mm. <laughs>
3: Um, I don't think I particularly have a good one, but I quite like the sound of like crackling wood and fires. Um, mm. I don't know why I just have found more in my adult years. So I don't necessarily have it related to my childhood, but I have just found that to be a lot more soothing and calming. I think just being more in touch with um, myself since being burnt out. So I think I quite like lighting candles and um, the crackling ones mm. and just like listening to that.
0: Mm. beautiful sounds. Yeah. Mm. And I'm wondering like, what are the sounds that you associate, what are the sounds that you hear during your nursing day from, <laughs> from the morning?
1: Constant, Constant bells. I was going to say yeah. bells, the alarm bells. And sometimes in my unit, we have patients who think they're putting the light on and, <laughs> and they ring the alarm and you they're running and then you're like, false alarm, it's just someone having a wee. <laughs>
2: I just hear chat all day, just all day long, someone's saying something I put my headphones on and listen to reggae music (laughs) I literally just hear chatter even on the days when you are on your own or you think you're on your own someone will just come in and stop talk it's like I've got a lot to do and it's not a bad thing to talk is good
3: but that's the sound I hear the most Mm -hmm. um I would say generally like nursing call bells I think Mm -hmm. is quite a common one Mm -hmm. um and if the, if the,
0: what about the Kofiwurla prat Fellowship, is that got a
3: sound? Um, Chatter teams. or laughter? <laughs> I
1: think for me it's teams, we're always on teams meeting. <laughs> so when I hear click, click, I look up, even if I'm not in that department, I look to see, oh, they're having a meeting, I wish I could be there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Colferola has a buzz a vibe. It does, it has a vibe. It's a good vibe. Yeah. And it's a safe vibe. It's a very safe place. That's not a sound, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's a buzz, it's a buzz. There's always an energy in Colferola.
0: And um, I'm just wondering, does has there ever been a moment for you guys when time has frozen, your perception of time has changed?
2: For me, it was when I started to see the same poor behaviour in a new environment. Everything just stopped. I was like, I can't believe I've come from the frying pan into the fire. I thought this was different. But the behaviour, you can recognise behaviours... And I'd left one hospital, I'd come to another, was assured it was a safe, happy, welcoming place. But there's the behaviour and I just screeched a halt. I just had to stop and think, Okay, and I had to change my mindset, unfortunately, because where I'd come in being a little bit more open, I had to not be open because it, was being used against me. I can't
3: think of anything. Know, sorry. That's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any moments when time sped up? It's too much. It's all the time that <laughs> I spend with
2: my mum. When like literally, I'll sit with her. And my eyes are rolling, but then the nuggets come out. You know, mm-hmm. as time goes on, and I sort of think, oh, okay, yeah, here you got valid point. And time seems to speed up much more now that I'm older. I feel I've got less time to waste. So everything's a rush.
3: Yeah, I think on the fellowship, when we get into those moments where we're like, I don't know, something, we're just like laughing at something. I think there was one time in particular I can remember, I think it was about tech skills and trying to find, (laughs) (laughs) trying to find the White Allies course for London South Bank and it just spiralled into lots of different things and one of our colleagues, Ronke, was saying I found some gems and she had missaid it and Charlotte had bought that but I think when we're in that kind of mood I think Mm -hmm. that what was actually quite a long time Mm -hmm. had felt really Mm -hmm. short. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I thought you were going, so uh, I'm not very good with tech and teams meeting and uh, I said to them before we joined the teams, I said, it's likely I won't, they won't hear me, and they, I will say, Charlotte, I can't hear you, you're on mute. And exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I predicted it. I, sure enough, I was there talking, and everyone was like, Charlotte, you're on mute. But it wasn't just that I was on mute, my headphone wasn't even plugged
2: in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We do have some good times. Today. We've got a really nice group of people with us.
1: But the energy I had spent asking Raz make
2: sure I'm okay. <laughs> she tried. <laughs> yeah, Thanks to Copa Arola, It's yeah. where we are. We can laugh. You know, I look forward to coming to that because people understand, yeah. you know. You can say to people in your other job, this is how I feel but they don't get it Mm. you know um, even when you share lived experience they Mm. don't get it so I really look forward to coming out saying this morning poor Raz she normally gets me at at my worst Um, I don't know she doesn't mind because it's incredulous some of the things that I come back with you know (laughs) and you'd think I was making it up if you didn't know me Um, but it's that I really look forward to coming because we'll at some point laugh it off Mm. It just, and that is all down to rosheen and Koforola. Mm-hmm.
0: And just finally, is there a time of day that you would associate with Koforola? Koforola. I heard it pronounced in so many different ways online. I tell you.
2: Yeah, when you meet Ronke next week, she says it properly because it's
0: Koforola. It's Koforola, isn't it? It's like with a Koforola. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: It,
1: it took me some weeks to say it properly. And oh. so when we first joined the fellowship and we had to introduce ourselves, it made my <laughs> like anxiety because I think, imagine on a fellowship and you can't say the person's <laughs> name correctly. So we've, I've learned. But yeah, it took a few goes.
0: Yeah. It's with a hard K. Yeah. you got to go in hard with the K. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coal for a roller. Coal for a roller. So is there a time of day you associate with a the, with There's a day. Oh, sure. no, time of day. Not, not a
2: time
3: Sorry. of day I for me. A time of day. Every
2: day yeah. is a kofu for day because every day in my life I bring something of it into life. Mm. So it might be discussions that we're having. It might just be, like, one of my favourite times of day is on my way home. Every day I call our see what she's up to, and we have a little chat. And some it's that like i bring colfer roller into a lot of things um so every day is a colfer roller day for me and every there is just random times when it's necessary to call upon her or the fellowship or my fellowship um people
0: it's lovely is there anything you want to ask each other before there is <laughs> well I, I i
2: we always i joke and i say razzy's gonna be a ceo at some point like she, you know <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and charlotte's gonna say one day i've had enough of you guys i'm out am, mm-hmm. I, tr- am I right <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you think i'm right are my ambitions for you too high because i really think you can achieve
3: they're too high and i think a C, the role of a CEO is quite lonely, mm-hmm. and certainly right now I, I don't foresee myself having the social standing to be able to be in that position, um, and also I am I can have the tendency to be quite a venter, and I'm aware of that, and you can't do that <laughs> as a CEO, <laughs> um, but so... But
1: Hopefully by that time you've vented everything out. Yes. <laughs> There's nothing more to vent. You've sorted it everything. Mm-hmm.
3: And then all of a sudden there won't be a dropped car, I'll fall out my chair and then another vent. So yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe not. <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you feel you're making a difference, guys?
1: Um, I think in my department, for example, we've never had the career trolley ever. Mm-hmm. And um, so career trolleys where some, someone from workforce, along with one of the fellows or a couple of the fellows, or it could just be the fellows that would come and discuss different opportunities within the trust and so on. And it was not, never something that was done before. So I, I organized with Demi, who is somebody who's from workforce, and... um. When I initially told the nurses that we have the trolley, they were like, mm, okay. And I kept going back and back to say, please, can you come? She's in the seminar room. And they came, and it really made me happy that they spent almost two hours with her that day. Mm. Like, they just, even the matron had to come <laughs> go go in and see what was being said. And, you know, it really made me proud to be a fellow at the time because... Um. One, it's the first time, and two, that they really embraced and and they followed up. So somebody else made a meeting with um, the deputy chief for for her career advice, and um, an HCA has decided to actually do her nurse training. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think, I think at the beginning I wanted to boil the ocean, but I think adjusting my thoughts a little bit and realising it's the first time, like it's the first year of the fellowship and actually it's about making a grounding um, and it being a bit of a slow burner. Um, I think that a lot of the fellows have done a lot of amazing work, such as presenting at some of the most senior nursing meetings so eloquently. Um, And yeah, I do think even just kind of socialising our message, even that for the first year, um has them will continue to make a difference and i think we have recently challenged and had discussions around international Mm. recruitment which i think has been really powerful it's very topical at the moment around the ethics around international recruited nurses and ahps and so i'm hopeful that that has also made a difference as well
1: Mm what about
3: you jill
2: I can see that we're being listened to now, that that minoritised staff are being taken more seriously. I can see that people who really understand the importance of this are fully in, engaged. And I do think we will make a good difference, although it might not be us that that is there physically it's our grounding that we've set we're setting that way um I think the Colferola Benny Pratt Fellowship has allowed me to make a difference in my directorate um and it's it's a nice there's a, there's a little ripple of positivity so yes I do think I've made a change
0: and in 50 years time what I'll would you like to I'll be
2: 103 <laughs> <laughs> so probably be drunk.: <laughs> In
1: 50 years' time, I really would hope that we're not having to do EDI yeah at all that and I think that the younger generation embrace well, mm-hmm. I would like oh. to hope that the younger generation embrace and they have more um, friends in their circles who are multi multicultural so that they understand each other and that we don't have issues with um, EDI. That even going to the hospital as a minority, the person who is treating you understands a little bit and is Mm. curious and want to um, provide care that's culturally appropriate for the person because they've got friends and they kind of understand... What their friend Mum is going through, mm.
2: in fifty years' time, I would like to be sitting back, listening to my grandchildren, tell me how different the world is, mm. but in a positive, very positive way, mm. you know, oh, you know, Nana, when you used to say that black people were treated differently, that I don't know what you mean, mm. you know it's there's got to be an element of that we can't still be experiencing this in another 50 years
3: too much to bear i don't really have anything to add other than what they've said mm.
0: thank you so much thank you, thank so you guys have been amazing <laughs> 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 i hope i haven't kept you too long
2: no mm. no not at all it's been brilliant it's and been you nice you're a great <laughs> interviewer
1: yes you are <laughs> i don't <laughs> care. you're you great are. to interview I <laughs> I <relax. laughs> well yeah. you guys are just like um
0: yeah. just the best elements of the periodic table. That's into- <laughs> I've, I'm bad at science. You probably know the ones that I mean. <laughs> the ones that are sociable, but not explosive.
1: Yeah. Okay, that's us. <laughs>